Well, today's message is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, titled, Heaven's Heart Toward Idolatry. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from verse 10 of chapter 17 through to verse 34, and you'll note here that Paul is in Athens. He perceives some things. It prompts him to behave a certain way. There's a response amongst those in Athens. And then he's taken before a council to give his defense. Please listen carefully. This is God's holy and infallible word. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing... Him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, 
commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So Paul has fled to Athens, and he's alone without any of his teammates. Today's text, we're going to talk about his weight. What was he waiting for? We'll see Athens and just a brief overview, some quotes from some commentaries about how this city was completely and totally given over to idols. And then we'll see Paul's response to this, that his spirit is stirred up within him by these observations that he made of this city while he was there. He wasn't just a tourist marveling at the architecture. He wasn't just a tourist marveling at the structures and the order, apparent order, and the wisdom on display, and the wealth and the opulence. And then from this, we see what happens. We see the overflow of a provoked Christian spirit. What happens within one who goes through this when they bump into a place overflowing with idols? And then, as usual, some brief questions to know and to love and to obey God more. You'll see the map there. I think it's helpful to keep in mind that Athens is still a place in this world today. And one of your application points can be to pray for these regions to be Christian, to be evangelized, to repent, and turn to God. Paul's interaction with the philosophers of Athens and his defense before the Areopagus serve as a pivotal text on the application of biblical apologetics. It is good for us to consider one key defining text on apologetics as we move into today's text. We're going to look at this from 1 Peter chapter 3 today, and in a subsequent sermon, we're going to do a basic overview, a biblical primer on biblical apologetics to understand the principles behind it, and then we're going to come back to this text and look at Paul demonstrating to us so, uh, with such great ability and wisdom, how to show, how to demonstrate those principles in real life. So, First Peter three thirteen through seventeen. And he who is, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, 
that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So there are some foundational principles regarding apologetics that are laid before our eyes here. This idea of apologetics comes from this Greek word to give a defense. Apologia. This is a verbal defense. This is speech in defense. You've been questioned or you've been attacked. And then it is also a reasoned statement. It is a well-ordered, cogent argument. First, we see that threats will tempt Christians to turn away from God and to not live out our calling to give a defense for the faith. So courage is a mark of a biblical apologist. Threats will tempt Christians to abandon defending the faith. Apologetics next starts with a heart wholly given over to God, sanctified. Many people will usually think of arguments and facts to marshal as the defining feature of apologetics. This is not so. Apologetics starts with a pure heart. Don't try to move into apologetics as one who is riddled with idols yourself. It's perhaps as dangerous as trying to cast out demons and not knowing Jesus yourself. Next, apologetics requires readiness. This readiness will occur as a result of this heart sanctified. This heart given over to God will lead to a mind that is prepared. And your spiritual preparation is undergoing, is always occurring as well. So this is readiness. Always be ready. Spiritual and mental preparation. We are in a battle. We are here for the kingdom. And every day, we have a battle within us that our hearts need to be sanctified unto the Lord. And every day there's a battle around us for us to bring the kingdom of God to bear through our lives and our words. Apologetics occurs in general as a response to questions and attacks. Evangelism initiates. Apologetics responds. So we must be not only initiating an evangelism, but we must also be ready to respond and give a defense for the faith once we have gained the attention of curious, of the curious or of the naysayers. Next, apologetic defenses are to be made to anyone who asks us. We are to be generous to all. Any soul that expresses resistance and comes to us, whether it's resistance that may be going in the right direction or the wrong direction, we give a response to all who ask. We're not going to show favoritism. We're not going to check for the value of the jewelry or uh, whether they're Italian shoes before we give a response. Next, the hope within us prompts others to ask about our faith. We are hopeful and that gives us an opportunity to be apologists. If you dive in and start telling people why they should believe the faith and they haven't asked you for the hope that is within you, I'm not sure you're acting as a biblical apologist. In this text, we see it is clearly a response to who you are. 
So are you hopeful? This is associated with sanctifying the Lord in our hearts. Because what greater hope can there be? Next, by inference, our hope will be evident by our words and our lives. So we'll be faithful. We'll be walking in love and service. We'll have relational wisdom. We'll be peacemakers. We'll be known for our love for one another. This is not, this is not just an intellectual activity. This is not just an intellectual activity. And if we treat it that way, we'll probably do more harm than good. However, there are solid intellectual reasons for the hope that is within us. Revelation received, known, rightly understood, makes us eminently rational and reasonable in our arguments. And it is utterly disarming when we understand biblical apologetics. We will leave those who resist the gospel speechless. Next, defending the faith must be done humbly with meekness and fear and never out of pride. It can never be for the purpose of winning the argument and proving that you're the one that was right and you're the one that had to have that great, got to have that great moment of leaving the other person speechless. Remember when you were speechless before the throne of God's holiness and the inescapable, eternal, rational reality of who He is and who we are and the judgment that we deserve and the glory of Christ's atoning sacrifice for us. So this will lead us to communicate with courtesy and meekness and in fear. Yes, with clarity, but with courtesy. Next, a good conscience is essential to biblical apologetics. The joy of forgiveness must be in us as we are walking this path. Not only for past sins, but also if we have violated these principles of apologetics as it comes to the moment of the interaction, our consciences will trouble us, and rightly so. And it will, a troubled conscience leads to a mind that has a hard time concentrating. It, it is difficult to be rational and clear and have good listening and good exchange when your conscience is troubling you. And so we see that good conduct is essential to biblical apologetics. Learning these things by God's grace and growing in Christ-like character leads us to be able to behave in an upright fashion, not motivated by fear or pride, but motivated by love and humility, a desire for God to be glorified and for this soul to be delivered and brought into the kingdom of light. So we can say that biblical apologetics, we can have some words to describe it. Sanctified, courageous, prepared, responsive, generous, hopeful, faithful, rational, humble, forgiven, upright believers giving a defense for their faith. And it would be worth really paying attention to this. Um, if you want to succeed as an apologist, of course, first you have to be an evangelist. 
But all of this comes down to who are you? And is the Lord sanctified in your heart? Are you walking before Him in love and service? And are you motivated by His glory? And motivated for this deceived soul to be delivered? What happens as a result of this? At least a few things are mentioned in this text. Those who revile such a biblical apologist will be ashamed of themselves. Through your good behavior, they will be ashamed of themselves. And this is good. Do you remember when you came to Christ, how He made you ashamed of yourself? So this is one way that God can bring others to Him. We also see here that we need to be prepared to suffer. If the Lord wills it, biblical apologists will suffer for doing good. And in this context from 1 Peter 3, being a biblical apologist is what is being set out as doing good. And so we're going to be tempted not to do that. And it is clearly better to suffer as a biblical apologist doing good than as one who does evil. As we will see today, Paul is provoked in his spirit. He's stirred up in his spirit unto this good work of being a biblical apologist. Well, you know, sometimes we can be provoked and stirred up in our old man and in our flesh and try to accomplish things through arm of the flesh. And then we would suffer for doing evil. So with that in mind, let's take ourselves back into the story and consider Paul's weight there in Athens. The text says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So Paul's first action in Athens was to wait for Silas and Timothy to come to him from Berea. It appears that initially he may not have planned to minister in Athens without them. This wording suggests that he was planning initially to wait for them to arrive and they would minister together as he had done before. One of the commentaries says, Paul was not willing to appear publicly till Silas and Timothy came to him, that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses the word might be established, but in the meantime his spirit was stirred within him. Bonson, in his very helpful work, Always Ready, says, in the early 50s of the first century, Paul was on something of a missionary furlough, waiting in Athens for Silas and Timothy. But the Lord stirs him up. This was a time of rest, of reprieve, of prayer, of rejuvenation. You know what he had been through. We've seen all the suffering that he's experienced. He had just fled Berea to this town in Athens, we, we must assume there were some connections there that someone from Berea had, or at least a place that he could stay. And he's getting a breather. Who knows, maybe he looked out his window and it all started there. Maybe he went down to get some food from the marketplace and he looked around. You know, it's an example to us that the soul alive in Christ is never, ever, going to get a time out from the glory of Christ. Right? I mean, are we just going to be consumed with His glory when, except when we're on furlough? Of course not. So we see that something strikes Him. And it is that Athens, this city, is wholly given over to idols again. Now Paul waited for them, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him 
when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So I'm going to read a couple of lengthy, lengthy quotes about the city of Athens. Now, who here has been to locations in America or even in Europe and seen some structures like this before? Maybe Washington, D.C., um, overseas. Anyone been to Europe and seen some of these structures over there? Okay. So Paul was not a tourist. He was not a tourist. He was seeing these things through the eyes, I believe, of the framework of idolatry and understanding how terrible it is and what it does. So when you hear this, think of Athens. You can even see it in your mind's eye. The Agora was kind of the central marketplace where they would come together for the exchange of goods. And it was also a place where they would talk to one another. They would see their neighbors and they would converse together. And then up on the hilltop was the Acropolis with this most amazing structure, the Parthenon. And then nearby was, the, was Mars Hill where the Areopagus met at, at one point in time. Whether they were still meeting on that hill during this time or not is a, a question mark. And you can imagine this town with these glorious temples and these glorious structures surrounding this central marketplace. And Paul has seen all of this. The profligate Roman satirist, Petronius, once said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. The, simply city, the, the, the city simply teemed with idols. The visitors to Athens and writers, for example, Sophocles, Livy, Pausanias, Strabo, Josephus, frequently remarked upon the abundance of religious statues in Athens. According to one, Athens had more idols than all of the remainder of Greece combined. There was the altar of Eumenides, dark goddesses who avenge murder, and the Hermes, statues with phallic attributes standing at every entrance to the city as protective talismans. There was the altar of the twelve gods, the temple of Ares, or Mars, the god of war, the temple of Apollo Patrus. Paul saw the image of Neptune on horseback, the sanctuary of Bacchus, the 40-foot-high statue of Athena, the mother goddess of the city, sculptured forms of the muses, and the gods of Greek mythology presented themselves everywhere around Paul. What is today taken by tourists as a fertile field of aesthetic appreciation, the artifact, artifacts left from the ancient Athenian worship of pagan deities, represented to Paul not art, but despicable and crude religion. Religious loyalty and moral considerations precluded artistic compliments. Certainly, this should impact our view of education. Any over-focus or unintentional glorification of such godlessness should have no part in the education of our children. We would certainly prefer Jerusalem over Athens. Discipleship over the academy. Next. The account here given of that city, it was wholly given to idolatry. This agrees with the account which the heathen writers give of it, that there were more idols in Athens than there were in all Greece besides put together, and that they had twice as many sacred feasts as others had. Whatever strange gods were recommended to them, they admitted them, 
and allowed them a temple and an altar so that they had almost as many gods as men. And this city, after the empire became Christian, continued incurably addicted to idolatry. And all the pious edicts of the Christian emperors could not root it out till by the eruption of the Goths, that city was in so particular a manner laid waste that there are now scarcely any remains of it. It is observable that there, where human learning, where human learning most flourished, idolatry most abounded. And the most absurd and ridiculous idolatry, which confirms that of the apostle, that when they professed themselves to be wise, they became fools. And in the business of religion, were of all other the most vain in their imaginations. The world by wisdom knew not God, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. They might have reasoned against polytheism and idolatry, but it seems the greatest pretenders to reason were the greatest slaves to idols. So necessary was it to the reestablishing even of natural religion that there should be a divine revelation and that centering Christ. So these philosophers, these supposed lovers of wisdom are blind fools proclaiming their own wisdom. Paul sees this. He walks about in its midst. And what happens? Well, let me ask you this before we move on to Paul. Do you think we live in a culture similar to Athens? Wholly given over to idolatry? Widespread demonic infestation unto proliferating human rebellion and irrationality and absurdity to the highest level conceivable? People identifying as animals and being treated as such or as the opposite sex and demanding to have their pronouns changed? You think this absurdity is a random event? This level of irrationality is the fruit of idolatry. It is the fruit of a culture given over to false worship. In his book, Idols for Destruction, The Conflict of Christian Faith and American Culture, published in 1993 by Schlossberg, Bork, and Colson. We read these words. Our argument then is that idolatry and its associated concepts provide a better framework for us to understand our own society than do any of the alternatives. Because, you know, there's various ways to try to interpret history or to interpret culture. Toynbee was right to say that by the 50s, the crucial questions confronting Western man were all religious because of the inevitable dependence of a society's actions on its beliefs. If its actions are destructive, we must ask what it believes that causes it to behave in such a way. Schlossberg goes on in this helpful book to describe American culture through the framework of idolatry. He looks at idolatry in history, the idolatry of humanity, the idolatry of mammon, the idolatry of nature, 
the idolatry of power and the idolatry of religion. And then he goes on to describe the consequences of each of these areas of idolatry and shows the trajectory of cultural failure associated with these false forms of worship. But he also shows the path to renewal, giving hope. Listen to where he saw us in 1993. When a civilization turns idolatrous, its people are profoundly changed by that experience. In a kind of reverse sanctification, the idolater is transformed into the likeness of the object of his worship. Israel went after worthlessness and became worthless. Jeremiah 2.5 As the psalmist put it, those who make the idols are like them and so are all who trust in them. Psalm 115 verse 8 Bloodthirsty gods produce bloodthirsty people. If someone thinks that chance rules the universe, his actions are likely to appear random. If people increasingly think that malevolence rules, as do the growing legion of Satan worshippers, we can expect more human sacrifice. If there is a decline in the number of people who believe that God is love, we can expect fewer who think that actions of love are moral imperatives. For any individual or society, therefore, the religious questions are the ultimate ones that govern human conduct, whether they believe that or not. That is what lies behind Butterfield's conclusion that for 2,000 years, ordinary Christian piety has made an enormous difference in Western society, one that the historians, by and large, have missed entirely. The daily preaching of love and humility as virtues have made the moral landscape measurably different than it would have been otherwise. And we are now beginning to find out what life would have been like without it. Brothers and sisters, if this is true, and I believe it is by and large, we need to understand that we have been marinated in a culture of idolatry. And... I suspect when we get to the key questions of application today, we will all discover that we need to be delivered from this. Because why are we not seeing an army of provoked spirits amongst Christians in today's world? So Paul's spirit is stirred up with him by his observations. The text again, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So he's gone through the city. He's observed the comprehensive idolatry. He understands the demonic infestation of this city and the accompanying human blindness and rebellion of sin, the human heart unrestrained and teamed up with demons. And he's provoked. His spirit is provoked within him. You know, we've seen this word before in Acts. It's to stimulate, to spur on, to urge, to irritate, provoke, arouse to anger, scorn, despise, to make angry, exasperate, or to burn with anger. Our English word paroxysm comes from this Greek word, which from Webster's 1828 is an exasperation or exacerbation of a disease, a fit of higher excitement or violence in a disease that has remissions or intermissions, as the paroxysms of a fever or gout. 
In the asthma world, people can have paroxysmal coughing where they cannot stop until they pass out. This is the stirring up that was occurring inside of Paul. But you may wonder, since we read it every Sunday, how can this be? Because we've read in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is not provoked. Well, now, wait a minute. Paul's spirit is provoked, but love is not provoked. How can we explain this? Well, I kind of mentioned it in the introduction to the sermon. Let's look at two scriptures that help us see these ideas. In Acts 15, 39 and 40, which we saw before. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. This was a provoking that took place between brothers that divided them. And this appears to be the type of provoking not associated with love. A stirring up of the flesh. And as we looked at it before, we, it, looks, it looks like the suggestion is meant to be that Barnabas was the one who was most stirred up in that fashion. That's not good. So love is not provoked like that. In fact, we can say that love cannot be provoked like that. But love can be stirred up. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider one another to provoke, that is to stir up, the same word, unto love and good works. That your presence in my life should cause me to carry on good works that I just can't stop like I'm having a coughing fit. And I would do the same for you. And particularly here, the idea in view is not forsaking our own assembling together as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day drawing high. So exhortations can be a way that we stir each other up in our spirits. So this is a provoking between brothers that is associated with love. So on the one hand, our fallen flesh can be provoked, stirred up, which leads to sinful thoughts and actions. Conversely, when our new man in Christ is provoked, the born again, the new creation that we rejoice about at the assurance of pardon that is you and me, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Oh, when He in us is stirred up, it is unto faithful good works of love. We're being stirred up from our patterns of lovelessness. So what provoked Paul's spirit? What was it that provoked him? Each idol to Paul was a unique expression of demonic human rebellion against God. Each one a distinct word of blasphemy against God and His glory. Jesus, whom He had seen in glory, whose voice He had heard and whose blinding glory had left Him blind. This one whom He adored and whom he would rather glory in than do anything else. These people were defaming his name. These idols, every one, was an assault on the glory of Christ. An insult to his glorious Savior. Bonson writes, these idols were not merely an academic question to Paul. They provoked him. As Paul gazed upon the Doric temple of the patron goddess Athena, the Parthenon standing atop the Acropolis. And as he scrutinized the temple of Mars on the Areopagus, 
He was not only struck with the inalienable religious nature of man, as we will see in verse 22, but also outraged at how fallen man exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for idols. Certainly he was also stirred up because of what it meant for these fellow human beings and their destination if things did not change. But we can also ask another question. This is really important. Who stirred Paul's spirit within him? Perhaps you might say he stirred himself. And that could be reasonable from one perspective. But we do need to ask, could a fallen man's flesh stir himself up against idolatry and blasphemy against God? No. No, in our, in our fallen flesh, we won't be stirred up by this. We'll join in. So, we need to see also that the structure of the Greek is that Paul's spirit is passively impacted by this stirring up. Something, someone is stirring him up. So walking in the spirit, filled with gratitude and love toward Christ, basking God's infinite majesty, glory, wisdom, and power, Paul's spirit receives the stirring hand of Christ himself. This is what is happening in the background. You know, we say this is the acts of, of the apostles, but it's the acts of the risen Christ by his Holy Spirit through his people, continuing his works. And so in this, brothers and sisters, we see heaven's heart toward idolatry. We know the halls of heaven provoked in this loving way. Stirred up. Those walking in the Spirit remain sensitive to these worldly insults of Christ. Remain sensitive to these insults of the One who suffered and shed His precious blood for them. Never being desensitized to these flagrant assaults and insults upon Christ our Savior, our Lord, and our King. Really, this provocation of spirit asks you, do you love Christ? Do you value Him? Who will you stand up for if they are insulted? If someone insults your husband, if someone insults your wife, if someone insults your children, if someone insults your church leaders, who will you stand up for? Will your spirit be stirred up? Oh, brothers and sisters, how much more so Christ, our precious Savior. So this provocation of spirit is the Lord initiating, think of it this way, the Lord initiating prayer within Paul. And he surely would have responded to the Lord. So while it's not mentioned in this text, we can certainly see that prayer by Paul surely would have been the first response to the Lord stirring up his spirit. You can, you can imagine the likelihood of Paul waiting, resting, stirred up. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I will go. I will go. I will preach the gospel to this town. I think we need to see that Paul serves as a paradigmatic example for all true believers. He shows us the path to a renewed world by his provoked spirit and subsequent actions. We might even go so far as to say if our spirits are not provoked, we will not be much of a part 
of transforming the world through our faithfulness, being a part of God's transformation of this world. Are we like Paul? Are you like Paul? And, and I, may, I, may, I may circle back to this at the very end and just ask these questions again. Are we like David who proclaimed rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law? Are we like Christ at the Passover early in the book of John? Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now there's something going on inside of Jesus Christ at this point in time. And they tell us at the end, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So what did Jesus do in His zeal for God's house? His zeal for God's glory. His zeal that He shared with Paul when He stirred him up there in Athens. When He had made a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And He said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of merchandise. Then His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten Me up. Or, Brothers and sisters, have we somehow embraced a stoic attitude towards this world's constant insults against our God and our King? Believing we're simply to just resign ourselves to the state of things. Would Paul ever not be stirred up if he walked the streets of Facebook and other places in our world today? Would Paul ever not be stirred up? Would Christ ever stop fashioning whips? Would David ever stop crying if he were here? Where are our hearts, brothers and sisters? But it's not just something that occurs inside. This spiritual stirring that God does leads to actions, leads to behaviors these are the things that God uses to transform the world, to bring in the lost, and to transform the world. What did He do? It's not complicated. Therefore He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Back then, there were in-person opportunities because everyone did things together. There was the synagogue. There was the marketplace. Those in-person opportunities have been greatly reduced by the fragmentation of our world. Creating in-person opportunities to be together with the lost, with those caught up in idolatry, needs to be a top priority for us, for God's church today. See this word, therefore. So when you are stirred up, there will be an overflow. Whenever, this, whenever God does this, there will be an overflow. It will not stay inside. There will be prayer. Prayer comes first. But then comes faithful actions. And you see, I don't think this is just for Paul. You think he was stirred up only because he was an apostle? No. 
He was stirred up because he saw Jesus. And you will be too if you fix your gaze on him. His word will be like a fire in your heart. Your desire to speak his goodness and glory will be irresistible. So let's talk about this speech. He reasoned, we are told. This is to converse and to discourse with one, to argue, to discuss. So I want us to see when the Lord stirs up His beloved, unlike being provoked in the flesh, when the Lord stirs up His beloved against His enemies, it's not unto the arm of the flesh thoughts and actions, not unto confusion or undirected passions of action, but rather there's this meekness and this humility that comes forth and this rational approach so that this kind of person who's been stirred up by the Lord brings forth His Word into and through the stirred up spirit in careful, rational discourse. So Paul, we don't know, but it's unlikely that he had, during this wait time, done all of his studying about the polytheistic madness of the ancient world. Tarsus was a major city, trained up under Gamaliel. He knew their poets, as we will see. He quotes two of them himself. Maybe there were plaques to them and he saw them. But he was prepared as he went forth. And this knowledge that he had, God brings it and puts it all together in this fabulous discourse that he lays out to defend the faith. Where does he go? Nothing changes his first priority. He goes to the synagogue first. As always, he began with the Jews, but it's important to note that we hear of not one Jewish convert. The power of idolatry and demonism on display. The power of idolatry and demonism on display. And when you look at Schlossberg's work on idolatry, it's everywhere. In our world influencing us, moving in us, in our surroundings. Next, he also, there in the synagogue, as usual, evangelized the Gentile worshipers. He was ready to give the gospel to all, as usual, no favoritism. So what we see here is that Paul is stirred up to go and do what he had already been doing in every other town. Right? It wasn't something new. Right? So again, that shows us that he was probably waiting to do this that he's doing, until Paul, until Silas and Timothy came to join him. But he couldn't wait. He couldn't wait. He stirred up. He goes to the marketplace as well. So he doesn't just stay there in the synagogue. It's like in Philippi when he went out to find a place where people were praying. He was just looking for someone to talk to. Paul is relentless. Even while alone, Paul is relentless. Let us continue to pray for Brother Steve Smith and his work, as he is often alone, bringing forth the gospel in today's Agora. We need more places like this where people would be coming together and we could have face-to-face -face interactions as a natural part of our lives. But God bless this to happen, even here in the town of Edgefield, perhaps. It says that he did this with those who happened to be there. 
So Paul goes to the marketplace, and he's not targeting anyone in particular. He's targeting his neighbors, all of them that are there. So he didn't limit his efforts to a certain type of person. That's one thing we can learn from this for sure. Slave, free, man, woman, young, old, poor, rich, sick, healthy. He preached the gospel to any and to all who would listen here in this public square, in this demonized town. You know, he really had to trust that the gospel is the power of God, didn't he? I mean, he was all alone in the midst of perhaps the world's greatest philosophical center of learning with perhaps some of the greatest architecture and evidence of civilization that has ever occurred by himself. Bonson says, Paul could not keep silent. He began daily to reason with the Jews in the synagogue and with anybody who would hear him in the Agora, at the bottom of the Acropolis, the center of Athenian life and business, where years earlier Socrates had met men with whom to discuss philosophical questions. Paul's evangelistic method was always suited to the local conditions and he portrayed and, and is portrayed with historical accuracy by Luke. We see in Ephesus that Paul taught in the school of Tyrannus, but in Athens his direct approach to the heathen was made in the marketplace. Paul had already approached the unbelieving Jews and God-fearing Gentiles at the synagogue, now he entered the marketplace of ideas to reason with those who met with him there. This is interesting. The Greek word for Paul's activity recalls the dialogues of Plato, wherein Socrates discusses issues of philosophical importance. It is the same word used by Plutarch for the teaching methods of a peripatetic philosopher. For those of you who um, are like me, uh, you had to look it up. Peripatetic means itinerant. Okay? Paul did not simply announce his viewpoint. He discussed it openly and gave it a reasonable defense. He aimed to educate his audience, not to make common religious cause with their sinful ignorance. So this is the apologist. You're an evangelist. You need to be ready to defend what you're saying. That's when you become an apologist. I think it's fitting to hear the words of Schlossberg here regarding the path to renewal. Because what we see Paul doing here represents an essential aspect to the path of renewal. Christian revolution begins with the individual and has its concrete effect in the culture. I'll pause here to say that this is revolution defined by Schlossberg in terms of rate and an accelerated rate of cultural transformation. He describes it and how the Marxists pull it off, but he also points to how often we'll see a major cultural revolution when the gospel sweeps through like what we saw in the first century. This begins with the individual and has its concrete effect in the culture. Whether or not it exercises control, it always takes its stand with the eternal requirements of God against the idolatrous attractions of the moment. This means that it may appear either backward or forward-looking depending on the nature of the opposition. Its enemy at a given time may be an ideology that marshals ideas in order to preserve the current order, or at another time, a utopia that sacralizes a new order. It may be subject, therefore, at any time to being attacked as either liberal or conservative, but it can never be either. So do you hear that? This is not about political or even scholarly persuasions. It's about
pushing the antithesis between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. All orders, old and new, are subject to the same eternal law that the church serves and therefore are judged by the same standard. If they are found wanting, it has nothing to do with their conformance to this or that tradition. To expect a transformation of society that results from changed people is not an idealistic hope that can never come to pass. It is a matter of historical record. In the midst of the nature worship of the second millennium before Christ, Israel introduced the dynamism of a people who worshiped the God beyond nature. As long as Israel maintained the distinctiveness of this heritage, it alone amongst its neighbors built a society based on justice. One that recognized that there was an objectively understood ethic beyond the exigencies of power. Much later, the new Christian church infused the Mediterranean world with this same vision. This social transformation made Western civilization what it was. Love became the central idea in the dominant ethic. So much so that idolatry adopted its language and actions and thereby was made tolerable for a time. So first, what framework do you use to interpret the world in which you live? Do you understand the eternal polarization that defines reality? Or do you, have you given way to false forms of polarization that divide humanity along transient and insignificant lines? There's one polarization that matters. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Are you worshiping God or are you worshiping idols? All of life must be seen through this framework. That's the first question. So examine yourself. Are there other forms of polarization that guide your thinking on a regular basis? Are you battling for battles that aren't eternal? The battle that matters. Instead, getting caught up in other battles. Next. And, and this, the answer to that first question may define why your spirit is not provoked properly, if it's not. Second question. Has this happened to you? Have you cried in your bed because of the lawlessness of our age. Have you been stirred up in your spirit when you see the idolatry of this age? Do you long for the idolatry that takes place in the house of the living God to be driven out and for pure worship to be restored in His churches throughout the earth. 
Are you provoked? Do you grieve that your Savior is not being worshipped by every soul? Do you grieve that there are those who mock Him and insult Him? Or do you not even see through the right grid? Or if you do see through the right grid, do you not realize that this is the healthy, normal response of heaven in your heart towards this world where the devil's kingdom is still expressing itself so greatly? Brothers and sisters, may God bless each one of us to shed tears in our bed because His law is not being kept in our world. Finally, last question. Have you shed tears? Has your soul been stirred up because of the idolatry in your own heart? Could it be that until that happens, until we're so deeply offended with our own lack of love for God, it's unlikely for us to be offended if we're insulting Him regularly with our own lives of faithlessness. Why should we expect to be stirred up like Paul? Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, Father, bless us with this great gift of being stirred up in our souls in regards to our own idolatrous hearts, in regard to the manifestation of demonic infestation around us in our culture. And bless us, O oh God, each one of us, and as families, and as a church, and as your church in the earth, that you would cause one holy, glorious bride to be stirred up and rise up to live and proclaim your good news to this world in gladness and in hope, in patience and in humility, with courage. Oh God, bless us to this end for your glory that your name would be praised in all the earth that every knee would bow and every tongue confess and every demon be banished into the abyss to the total and complete glory and victory of your name over all the cosmos. For you alone are worthy. Make it so in our hearts, we pray, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.